0: Well, here we are, special 200th episode of New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And we have with us Mark Oppenheimer of the Unorthodox Podcast, Tablet Magazine, LA Times.
1: No, I quit the LA Times.
0: Oh, none of the LA Times anymore. Quit the LA Times. So you've quit the New York Times and the LA Times. Yeah. And, and- you, you quit them, which is like... I
1: quit that. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, oh, you, you get a lot, lot of hand, hand in,
0: in the relationship. It's <laughs> George sure, sure <laughs> would say in Seinfeld. So, Mark, we wanted to talk to you about many things. On our podcast, we've talked about faith and public life. So, we thought we'd talk with you about faith and public life, the state of our culture, state, of our,
2: state of our country, and maybe even the state of Israel. Maybe even the state of Israel, yeah. which, as
0: John Oliver said, Israel the topic you bring, you want to bring up if you st- want to have an argument and everyone in the room is of the same political party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And maybe even a little bit about podcasting because you've, you know, no, sure. you are a celebrity podcaster. I would well, I would venture to say it's all relative. I, I, this is true. This is true. I mean, you've had, you've had David Ducat. You had some pretty big guests. Yeah. We we've been really fortunate. Uh, uh, yeah.
2: Well, one of the things I guess, before we start with state of our country, let's talk about somebody else. And, uh, before we started, Scott made us stop talking because he wanted us to put this on the record. But uh, you were making a point, and actually I've heard many people, other people say this, particularly I have Yossi Klein-Halevi. Uh, but this idea of one of the things that people, whether left or particularly on the left when they're talking about Israel, do not understand is the ongoing current and legacy of trauma.
1: Yeah. You know, we were talking a little bit about the Netanyahu's and, and of course, his father being a major historian, his brother having been— uh, you know, killed at the Entebbe raid. Um, this is a country where everyone is is no more than a generation or at most two removed from the founding war. Well, first of all, an enormous percentage of people who are either still, who, who are living survivors of the Holocaust, um, you know, and and survivorism is a, is a somewhat abused term. Some people actually were in camp. Some some people were refugees who had to flee. Some people, it was something in between. But what, what, however you want to use the term, people who um, who, uh, who escaped with their lives. And then you have their children who were raised by people who, you know, barely escaped their lives and their grandchildren, um, in some cases, great grandchildren. So the more we know about trauma and, and, and its lasting effects in families, the more we know about epigenetics and the way it actually can, um, the trauma can affect your, um, you know, your congenital makeup. Um, the more compassion I think we have to have and the more understanding for why, um, you know why Israel reacts the way it does to um, certain, you know, to terrorism, to international provocation, um, to the world. And um, you know, it's not it's not necessarily such an interesting topic for normative ethics, right? The fact that right. some that people might be traumatized doesn't um, change, I don't think, the calculus of how they behave. But it certainly right. changes how, as as pundits and commentators and people trying to understand history, we would um, we would interpret those actions because. You know, what you have when you have the Israelis and Palestinians in conflict is you have two traumatized people. You have two, right. you have two peoples who have had very, very recent mass dislocation. And um, and people often forget that about Israelis because they because the country is prosperous, because it has um, because in many ways it looks like uh, America or Canada. Right. People forget the ways in which it's also um, in, in which it also in a very real sense uh, to some people can feel like Rwanda. So yeah, yeah. that's important to understand,
2: I think. Yeah, it's really that is an interesting point. The idea that it. it's the you know, the problem with the issue is it's traumatized people dealing with traumatized people. And yeah, you know, one of the things that um, I after I spent spent a couple of weeks in Israel studying there, and at that time I came back and I was working trying to with this urban uh, trying to get this urban outreach um, thing with children off the off the ground. And there was a series of shootings in the town that I was in. small It was a small city, but it had, at that point, the highest murder rate in America, I think, for a period of time. And um, the staff and the kids were all from, the, from this town. And, you know, things just came apart. And I remember thinking... Here are, you know, everyone, everyone in the room, all the staff in the room had lost a loved one to gun violence and half the kids had. And, you know, the idea of, you know, talking about the problems in our country, uh, in the urban, in our urban communities, these are people with many, many generations of trauma. And it's a living, it's a living experience. And it uh, looks like that increasingly we're bringing that kind of experience to the suburbs as well with, with the, once again, another school shooting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm
0: just fascinated by your epigenetics point too, because I think about like passing stuff like that on, and I, you know, Richard Dawkins says that epigenetics is—he I mean, kind of is dismissive of the whole thing. But if epigenetics is—is is, if there is something too that that things can be passed on congenitally, like the DNA can kind of change, and and things can—that's a wild. That that's that's wild, and it's also. Change the way evolution
1: works. (laughs) My sense is that we don't know, but it, it, and and I'm very skeptical. I'm skeptical about everything. You know, I'm skeptical about all sorts of scientific claims until, you know, I mean, I defer to scientists and in the meantime, I reserve judgment uh, because I'm, I'm so ignorant about those things, but it doesn't even have to be at at the, you know, at the genetic level to matter. You know, if you have, you have, you know, there's, there's another level, which is what's, what's the womb environment. You know, if you have, you know, pregnant mothers serving, you know, on, on the front lines, uh, or in combat zones, you know, what, what does, what does that, you know, the, what does the adrenaline and the heightened cort- cortisone and all of that, the the stress levels do to, um, to children. And then of course you just have the, you, you could take it off the biological level entirely and just say, what's, what does it do psychologically to be growing up in a society where everyone is militarized, everyone's in the military and everyone, all your parents, all the adults in your lives know somebody who has died either as a result of terrorism or in the military, in, in a military action. Right. And the answer is we don't know. I mean, that's what we're not talking about something so unusual in human history. Uh, you know, many of us live now through an unusually iranic time. If, if you live in the United States and you haven't been touched by gun violence and you have safe middle-class surroundings, then we are, we are in some ways the exception in human history. Right. So it's mm-hmm. not as if people, peoples don't persist and thrive. Um, in all kinds of situations, and I don't mean to say that there's anything about the contemporary Middle East um, that's so unusual. Nevertheless, it's worth taking into account when we think about, you know, why people have trouble making peace.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting to me if you look at the butchery of the post-Civil War, what we did in the West, uh, even up through what we did to the Filipinos after, you know, after, uh, you know, World War I, I think, you know, that's still a legacy of the Civil War. Um, and I think uh, you know. I and I, I, part of me wonders again. You know, yeah, I'm skeptic about causality as well. Of course, we can't ultimately know. But how much you know when we compare our own country to other Western civilized countries or developed countries? How much of our the gun violence, our violence in our society, is just part of our, you know, and I say this, you know, our national DNA. I mean, we, there's been a lot of violence. I mean, again, historically, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm getting ready to lecture on the 30-year war. So, you know, there's not a rose garden now, period, out there. But I do wonder, our national identity is, you know, not our national myths, but our national identity and our history is one of, of, great violence and um you know we're still a relatively a young civilization comparatively
0: i just wanted to note that two-thirds at least of this podcast uh, has named david hume the victor for the day and that we're all skeptical of causality
2: <laughs> 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 what, what can
0: what can what, what are our baselines
2: you know <laughs> yeah there we go not, not a good day for not a good day for aristotle exactly.
1: right? Yeah, yeah right i i um you know, I think, I think the United States has many national cultures. That's one of the things that we're learning. Right. I mean, they're, they're, that was certainly true at the time of the Civil War. The Northerners didn't necessarily feel they had that much in common with Southerners. And what we have as a national culture, it feels the things we have in common feel pretty thin. You know, the Fourth of July and Thanksgiving and a few songs. And now, of course, you know, shared uh, consumerism, shared appetites for certain purchases. But um, there is something fairly deep about gun ownership that um that those of us who aren't part of gun culture don't understand uh and but i also think a lot of these things are contingent right i mean i think that culture 50 years ago was was so much more substantially about hunting yeah. rifle you know hunting guns and rifles the the move into handguns seems to have been a cynical uh the move into defense of hand you know the, the right word shifting of the nra which really used to be a sportsman's association into defense of any and all handguns and semi-automatics and against any sort of thoughtful, moderate legislation, um, is, a, is a recent and contingent phenomenon that didn't have to happen. And, uh, but it did.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I was born in West Virginia. Um, family have been there for centuries, and it's a hunting culture. Matter of fact, it really, my grandfather's hunted to help feed their family. So it was that, it was that close to it. And my dad, but my dad, is um, he had to, he actually, he proudly told me, I'm no longer a member of the NRA. I just saw him this last weekend. And he, um, you know, he, it's funny because exactly, he has no understanding why you need these automatic weapons against them and things like that. And it's funny you say about the handgun because my dad, you know, we always had hunting rifles around. My dad, a couple of years ago, got a handgun. because I said, why'd you get a handgun? Well, the, you know, the, they got robbed. He says so to protect the house. But so, But this is what he did. He kept the handgun. In a gun safe, unloaded. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to him, "I said, well, well." And then he showed it to me. And he he has one of his little laser things on. I go, "Well, Dad, if you turn the laser on, then the the bad guy can see you." Go, oh, that's a good point. I said, "But why do you keep if you're if the gun's to protect you, why do you keep it locked, unloaded?" He goes, "We need to be safe." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's that's he represents, you know. Before the crazy gun culture. I mean, you know, he represents people who grew up around guns as hunting was, you know, hunting was their country club. You know, they would take one week of vacation, the only vacation they got to go hunt. One
1: of, the things, one of the things that not many people know about me is I actually went through, you know, an NRA certified uh, gun training course. I never got my license in Connecticut, but I, I had a friend who said, let's, you know, let's learn about guns. So we took, uh, we took a course with an NRA certified uh, gun teacher who taught us, you know, how to use it and gun safety and how to clean it, how to load it, uh, the different kinds of clips, all, all that, you know, all that stuff, most of which I've now forgotten. And, you know, on the last day we go to the firing range and we shoot the gun and we, you know, have practice. And one of my friends whom I took the class with, I think has gone on to be, you know, a sportsman with, you know, with, with handguns and pistols. Um, but the guy who taught the class was, was really um, really unhinged. I mean, he, he seemed to think that it, that it was important in Connecticut, which is a very low gun violence state, one of the lowest in the country. Um, you know, despite obviously Newtown, Newtown, the Newtown school shooting is really statistically, probabilistically speaking, the odds that you're going to get hurt with random gun violence are pretty close to nil. He really seemed to think that you owed it to your family to be packing at all times. I mean, he, he had, um, you know, he had a concealed carry permit or, I actually forget what the the permits situation looks like in Connecticut, but, you know, it was legal for him to be carrying and he wouldn't go. I forget which restaurant it was, whether it was Chili's or Applebee's or something, but that had said that had a national rule, no guns, even, you know, even if you were if it was concealed. Basically, they'd said this is a gun free franchise and he wouldn't eat there anymore because he felt he was putting his family at risk to go. I mean, he basically felt you always have to be prepared for a a random uh, unhinged shooter and you have to have a gun so that you can take that person down. If that, and he basically is living his life waiting for the handguns that he carries to become useful. And what's amazing to me is he doesn't, he didn't seem like a trigger happy person. I mean, he said he'd actually never pulled out his gun on anybody. You know, he said even in road rage situations, even in kind of confrontations, in parking lots, whatever, you know, the kind of thing once every year, two or three, all of us are in where we exchange words with somebody, maybe he had never reached gun. He seemed to be incredibly um, calm and thoughtful about it. And I thought, how is that possible? Like, how are you not since you think that it's going to happen at some point? How are you not jonesing for it to happen at every point? But yeah. his whole psychology turned on. I mean, when he traveled, he wanted to make sure that he was passing through states where if he got pulled over with his gun in the car, he wouldn't be in trouble. He his whole psychology was oriented around making sure that he was on the right side of the law in carrying guns at any given moment. Hmm.
0: I'm just so surprised, surprised it took it, that policy to make him stop it. eating at Applebee's. <laughs> 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 I mean, maybe that's, we need to start there first. They, like they, they have lovely wings. It be, should be, you'd be able to get a gun if you regularly eat it out. I know they so have Because there's them. certain, certain culture that your palate is Their wings are it's challenged. True.
2: Their wings are dangerously good. Yeah.
1: So it was, it was, I mean, people are, you know, people are different. And of course I never feel fear for my family anywhere. You yeah. know, and and there are people who live in cultures where there are terrorist bombings regularly who don't feel fear, you know, because so much of this is is what your expectations are and your psychology and as well as all these other things that go into what makes for for fear and paranoia.
2: Yeah, no, that that is an interesting thing. I remember I um, I had a group in Israel and I took them to a restaurant, an outdoor restaurant in the German quarter that had been. And we uh, had had an attack at the second intifada, and this is right after things. Of, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but they they were just loosening up the armed guards, and everybody ate there, and we, you know, we were fine. Then afterwards, I said, you know, I just has a point of. Um, you know, just so they understood, I said, this was where one of those things happened. And one person said, well, everybody seems so normal. (laughs) Well, you know, life, humans have a remarkable capacity. It's, we both have a remarkable capacity for flexibility and we have a remarkable capacity for holding grudges. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, both things are true. Yeah, that's right. You
0: spend a lot of time on unorthodox talking to a lot of different types of people. And you know, there's this new book by Patrick Deenon, "Why Liberalism Failed." It's just you know, people are writing a lot about it. And he's a Tocqueville student and thinks that you know, a lot of the virtues of of the liberal democratic sort of capitalist project depend on pre modern virtues of family and tribe and certain kind of artistic imagination, the aristocratic sort of imagination from philosophy and art and the metaphysical rise of religion and this stuff. Do do you do you think it? You know, I mean in the number of people you've talked with from wide sectors of, of public life in the arts, all sorts of things, Jews and Gentiles. I mean, are you, did, did that, does that kind of thesis about the dangers of, uh, of liberalism, it's fragility. Does that resonate with you? Or do you think that's like overstated?
1: I've always thought that liberalism is fairly fragile. I mean, I root for it. It's, it's definitely done, you know, done right by me. Um, I think the enlightenment project is, is better than all the alternatives, but um, I've always thought it's fragile. I mean, I think that I can't imagine who wouldn't agree it's fragile. The question is who who's undermining it, right? And, um, you know, you have a really thoughtful guy like a Rod Dreher who seems to think at this point that trans activists, you know, transsexual activists are the, the primary culprit. Um, I might be reading too much into him there, but sometimes if you read it, if you follow his blog for all, you think nothing's more significant than the percent of a percent of a percent of have. <laughs> who say they have gender identity questions. And, you know, meanwhile, um, not Rod, but a lot of people on the, on the, you know, among Christian conservatives were completely indifferent to the rise of divorce culture or certainly looked the other way, you know, didn't make an issue of it with Ronald Reagan when he became our first divorced president. Um, just basically stopped caring when, you know, it stands behind politicians who, you know, go whoring or, you know, your are David Vitters or whatever, basically stopped caring. And, um, And I actually think character matters enormously. And I think that, uh, but but what do I think undermines, you know, virtue collectively? I mean, sort of, you know, the unfettered market, corporations that don't have any, that don't have the sense of corporate responsibility that some of the robber barons for all of their evils did. I mean, I, I was thinking recently, where I live in Connecticut, when was the last time a corporation built a park or a swimming pool or a library in the way that, in the way that Mellon and Carnegie and, and Rockefeller and Vanderbilt tended to build public goods. Does anyone do that anymore? Is there a, is there a Microsoft park? I mean, there might be. And I, and, and, and they might, and of course a lot of these, a lot of these plutocrats have set up foundations that give away money in grants and they do it that way. So, and of course you never know who's giving anonymously, which is always important to remember when right. you pick on one in particular, they might actually be virtuously giving without seeking credit. So, so I want to be mindful of that, but in general, It's not my sense that, for example, a lot of our wealthiest people think that what's important to do is to build just publicly available public goods. I'm giving a talk tomorrow night here in New Haven about the history and decline of public swimming pools. And, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, we opened as a country thousands and thousands of public swimming pools um, that were used by people of all classes, and in some cases were integrated, and then they went through a period of segregation, and there's an ugly history to that. But the point is that you know, government and private benefactors used to think it was important to build public spaces that brought people together who then had a shared interest in maintaining them um, and who broke down barriers doing things like swimming. And, um, you know, where is that spirit? You know, so, so what, what degrades liberal, you know, liberalism? I mean, a lot of things, you know, um, homogeneity of our spaces, extreme privacy, gated communities, consumerism, all a lot of things that, that a lot of the, the virtue scolds have much less interest in than I do. Um, it, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting – when I think about, it, you know, a lot of these corporations do
2: community service days, um, you know, which – and again, I don't know what you write We sentence. don't
1: need their hours. We need their dollars. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, I've they been involved – The idea that anyone wants, like, yeah, you know, no, dot no, .com – trillionaires to give 5 hours a week. No, 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 we want we need big checks.
2: Well, what I, what's funny about it, those events become about them feeling good. You know, uh, you know, and I I've been involved in some of them and they do the photo op, they get the t-shirts and they take, you know, they get pictures with uh kids from the city and then they you know get back in their uh um uh, Mercedes SUVs and drive away and yeah. And so I, you know, again, there's part of me you never know when consciousness is going to be raised, but at the same time Even this whole kind of move from – and again, I think community service is good, but if you do – I think it's bad. I want to go out there and make a real (laughs) – I want to take a controversial stand. Who who doesn't think community service is good? You're You're against it in the winter. I'm not. I'm against protests in the winter. I will not –
0: I've I've been involved – I was involved in the second Iraq war protest was in the winter, and I was like, I'm done. I have no social conscience. Unless it's like spring to to <laughs> to early fall, I love. I'll protest for anything. In and those, not, you're, in those... you're
1: kidding. You're kidding because you're a kidder and you're a funny guy, which is why your wife stays with you. But the I'd like
0: to
2: think it's a little because I'm good looking. But
1: it's also it's also your looks and your glasses. But um,
2: you know, you know that's how I was silent during that whole little bit. Exactly.
1: <laughs> but making fun of protest. I mean, there's actually some deep truth in there. You know, it's it's unclear to me. For example, how much and there's been some scholarship on this. How much does calling your congressman and marching in the streets actually move the needle? You know, what moves the needle in America is winning elections. What's interesting is how much the truths of of liberal democracy that we saw in effect again and again throughout the 20th century stay true. Um, Now, obviously, there have been periods when protest has mattered a good bit. But at the end of the day, you know, we're actually a fairly stable representative democracy. And what matters is, you know, having high civic participation, high voter turnout Um, People show up at public meetings where zoning boards make decisions that, you know, is, is process. And so, you know, to a certain extent, what, what we need are, are civic activities that then further engagement in that process, which is why you want to bring people together in libraries and public pools, in parks. Then they have a stake in making sure those things survive. They're willing to support bond issues and tax initiatives that support those things. They vote for politicians who care about those things. Um, public schools, for example, you know, once you have one, when rich people send their kids to public schools alongside poor, poor kids, the public schools tend to be better. Yeah. Um, you know, so what do we need from, from, plutocrats for them to live in mixed income neighborhoods and send their children to public schools that that matters more than all the days of public service
2: yeah now so speaking of the stability of our democracy let's talk about Donald Trump <laughs> <laughs> look trump
0: has a foundation which he uses to buy paintings of himself and stuff like that right i mean trump. Trump
1: he's trump supporting founders. artists struggling exactly. oil artists right, yeah
0: <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babicone, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham. Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen Lipless, Charlotte Donovan, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show.
2: All right. Well, it's way too early to make any kind of historical assessment, but, uh, um, I mean, and again, I've tried to spend less time listening to the alarmist just because it gets too much and but uh, how much damage I guess we can't we won't know until down the road, but it seems like there's been a lot of damage done in the last year to exactly the things that you have just said help keep a liberal democracy thriving
1: yeah there's there's been there's been a lot of damage done i think I think, and i here I differ with people on the right and the left, some of my friends on the you know pretty far left. Don't you know, I'm very interested in the fact in the norms that have been overturned in the fact that it's now okay to um, be on the record saying incredibly misogynist things to basically admit to all sorts of misogynist acts to, um, you know, to have a pretty strong record of being a business cheat. That all these things, uh, you know, as again, I said, as I said, I think character matters. Uh, Certainly there are people on the left who will say to me. Um, Nixon was just as bad. Reagan was just as. Bad. No norms have been overturned. These norms were never there. They were always. They were always like centrist conceits. Um, I think that's wrong. And and of course, there are people on the right who don't care. I mean, you have your Eric Metaxas types, your your Hugh Hewitts, your um, Dennis Prager's, who just say, "Well, the ends justify the means," and you know, sometimes you make a pact with the devil, or or the Christian version, which you know, you never know whom God will raise up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, This is like
0: Cyrus. Trump is like the Cyrus is going to take us to the promised land.
1: (laughs) It's just astonishing, you know. So, I mean, to me, the real the real degradation has been on the right. And of course, I don't I'm not a a conservative in politically speaking, in our political culture. I'm not a conservative, though, in some ways I am fairly conservative. Uh, So I don't I don't wish the right well. But I but I do think that it is bad for political culture when. The right gets extremely toxic and aggressively stupid, and so I think that when you have people who should know better, you know, you have people with, you know, B plus minds like an Eric Metaxas, uh, who essentially have stopped thinking. Uh, well, or what's worse is that, is that with is that
2: with or without great inflation
1: B plus. That's a fair question since Eric and I both have degrees from the Great Inflated Yale College, um, and, you know. I mean, the interesting test for all of these people, right? Who say, well, lesser of two evils, and we want to preserve the Supreme Court and we must stop the Holocaust of unborn babies and therefore always vote for the pro-life candidate. Fine. But if you're a thoughtful, serious person, you would still say, comma, but how unfortunate that the particular candidate we have to hold our nose and vote for is such a terrible human being, right? You still right. would you still would have the integrity to say all of the true things about the person whom you have reluctantly voted for, and they won't. So that's where the rubber hits the road, is just try getting them on the record saying, you know, I just did a piece on Dennis Prager from Mother Jones magazine, and it is impossible to get him on the record saying anything negative about someone who only two years ago or three years ago, he said, was completely disqualified for the presidency by virtue of his use of the F word.
0: And that takes no political courage, right? Just to say, hey, look, I, I'm really glad he appointed Gorsuch, if you're conservative. Right. I really like the tax cuts, but I think his behavior is deplorable. And I'll vote with him on the issues I agree with. But when he crosses the line, I, I'll say so. And, and I'll be honest. I mean, that takes so little. Right. right. It, takes no, at,
1: it takes no political courage, just as yeah. saying that Bill Clinton behaved abominably yeah. uh, vis-a-vis Monica Lewinsky and others should, should have taken no political courage for, for liberals who voted for him.
2: Right. No, I think it's interesting, too. And the conservative intellectuals who do speak out. Seem to be have been exiled to an island, uh, and they am up th- and now they have gigs on MSNBC. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's the greatest gig. If you can be a, an exiled Republican, get a gig like Nicole Wallace, I mean, get spots in the, in the New York Times. I mean, that's that's the gig to get.
1: But this goes to what I've always said, which I really believe, and you have to hear me out on what I mean by this, which is. That most conservatives, we could have a separate conversation about liberals, but my interest in this, because I've written historically so much about evangelicals in America, and it's one of my strong interests as a journalist, most of them don't really mean what they say. And again, I don't think there are plenty of people on the left of whom the same could be said. This is not a pathology unique to the right. But for the moment, let's talk about conservative, I'm old, conservative Christians, conservative Republican Christians, that subset, right? And I've always said this to my friends on the left. I said, you have to understand they're not really that interested in Christianity. And I, I said to dozens of them over the years, if a candidate comes along who is aggressively, you know, pagan, or or anti-Christian, just non-theistic, but he. He supports their gun rights and, their, and low taxes. Fundamentally low taxes come first for most, most of these people. They will vote for him. They will throw the Ten Commandments, which, as we know, few of them can recite in total anyway. They will throw them out the window. It, in fact, the person could even be plausibly pro-choice. I mean, Trump wouldn't answer questions about whether he ever had a girlfriend get an abortion, right? He probably did, it seems to me. And he was pro-choice up until the moment he wasn't. He's right? a complete right. false friend. Right? They literally will stop caring if he culturally affirms them in a couple key areas, taxes to a lesser extent, guns, and just cultural style. It's just all cultural posturing. Most people are not political actors, or they're not political creatures, they're not philosophically minded, even very smart people, right? Even many even many professors,
2: Right,
1: I know science professors in the sciences who, who barely know who the vice president is, right? Most people are not political. Right. So if a person comes along who makes them feel good at, in terms of his cultural stylings, they will vote for that person. Um, and, and what's interesting is that some of these intellectuals are the same way. You know, Prager at the end of the day, of course, of course, Trump is a repudiation of everything he holds dear, but he, he kind of digs him as a fellow bro, and that's enough.
0: Yeah, David French has said this. Said this. He was on the Give and Take podcast. He said that like basically... He thinks because evangelicals are kind of outsiders among a lot of elite institutions that they're more impressed by oh come on in and get a photo op you know in the Oval Office you know praying around the present that that kind of goes a longer way than if you' been if you've had some access to in- elite institutions and you're not you're not as cheap a payoff you know like you, like yeah. that, that, that is oh look, you know our guy now like we, we have access and we're taken seriously
2: well that you know uh, Chuck Colson. You know, wrote an article about that. You know, at the in the during the nineteen eighty election, uh, saying the exact same thing. Although you would have to argue that people like you know Falwell now, his son, and uh, Robertson, a whole group of people have been have had some pretty good seats. You know, since the Reagan administration. So one of the things, that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. no, no, I was just I, what I was gonna what I yeah was what I was gonna say about that. You no, know, is that I do think. I think you're absolutely right for a large segment, and you've talked about this a lot, that there are people who identif- culturally identify um as conservative evangelical in a similar way that, you know, in Northern Ireland, you know, they identify it as Protestant and Catholic. It's tribe. It's not it's not it has not it has nothing to do with theology.
1: It's tribal. And and the other thing you have to realize is that that and to your point, right, about the the the, the Sions, the Franklin Grahams and people like that, um, a sense of victimhood is not necessarily tethered to reality. Right. right? People's sense of victimhood on the left and the right. I mean, I I know a professor at a different Ivy League university who grew up fairly poor but made it to, let's say, Harvard at age eighteen and then made it to graduate school at um, you know, let's say Stanford at twenty-two and then did six years there and then has had an appointment at let's say Princeton. know ever since so basically at this point has spent more than half her life at elite institutions and this is also someone who's white and is now upper middle class but grew up poor and her sense of victimhood um, in conversations i've had with her persists Um, and of course there's a sense in which how you grow up never leaves you and that's that's very real and we were talking about that with israel right (laughs) your 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 natal the baggage you're given at birth is real and never leaves you on the other hand the the intensity with which she will talk about her, her lack of privilege and her marginalization has never diminished, no matter how much privilege accrues, it never diminishes. And there are a lot of people like that on the left, but there are also people like that on the right. So you have these, I mean, you have evangelical Christians who live in entirely evangelical towns where they are part of the power structure and where they're absolutely the insiders in states where the evangelicals are the insiders in a country where in many respects they have become the insiders. And yet their narrative of being victims, you know, marches on.
2: Uh, And, since we're talking about evangelicals, Billy Graham died this morning. And uh, yeah, he died this morning, uh, 99 years old. Um, John Meacham did a, uh, did a beautiful kind of tribute to him this morning on uh, Morning Joe. But, you know, it struck me. Um, I wonder if the kind of evangelicalism that he personified has died with him or has already died. I mean, you know, uh, John Meacham was telling the story that this was in the 50s when he was going to do a revival in Chattanooga. He personally walked through the auditorium and took down the uh, divider. They had a, you know, they had one of those uh, gate dividers between the where the African Americans and the whites were set. He personally took that down.
1: He met. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, my yeah. old teacher John Butler. I, for, I You'd have to talk to him about it. And by the way, he's someone you should have on your show. He's now retired and back home in Minnesota. But great, great American religious historian and my grad school advisor. One of my grad school advisors. Uh, he often felt that Graham was given more credit for integrationism than he deserved, and I can't remember why John thought that. I don't know the history as well. Obviously, you could talk to Molly Worthen about this as well. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm uh, – yeah. I. He, for him, I seem to remember the jury was out on that. But certainly he was a more broad tent and conciliatory figure and a saner figure than a lot of those – who came after him, including some of his own, some of his own descendants.
2: Yeah, I might digest in terms of his, I think his, um, I mean, it certainly it was part of his personal piety, this idea of uh, whether, you know, I mean, he chose in many ways, and I think he learned from the Nixon experience to be more careful politically.
0: Yeah, And you could say there's a parallel move as Graham is trying to be less tribal and more yes. sort of public chaplain, the evangelical movement got more tribal and more hyperpartisan.
2: Like, I mean, they, they were kind of on just opposite trajectories. Or maybe he represents kind of that post-World War II high mark. You know, I mean, he's still, you know, you talk about when do we come When did we come together as a country? Well, to fight, you know, to fight the Nazis in, in Japan, you know, Imperial Japan, that that, that we were forced together and, and maybe part of the, I mean, again, I always talk, you know, I, you know, I've been in many talks where people say, well, if we can only get back to the 50s. I go, have you talked to any of your African-American friends about that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and many of them don't have African-American friends to talk to. But I do think there is part of Graham and the broad evangelicals. You even talk about, you know, a particular church in Pittsburgh where they both worked on the Billy Graham crusade and were involved in the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was... mean that, that was not totally unusual in And period, but that that uh there's uh, certainly um we do not live in that time okay hey, we
0: have we left Trump yet because i I do want to ask Mark, how many Jewish trump supporters do you know that are still trump supporters? Do you know any i personally personally yeah. personally i mean
1: you know so you know i what do we mean by no? <laughs> people whose email i not,
2: have not in the biblical sense yeah. right. <laughs> I hope.
1: Zero in the biblical sense
2: anybody, anybody it counts anybody you've been on the uh, subway with so how about yeah. that <laughs> uh,
1: there, in terms of people whom i regularly whom i talk to say you know once a month or every other month or more like people i really am in relation with pretty regularly one i know one um who's a modern orthodox guy who i think is is Really, it's the Iran deal, the Iran deal, the Iran deal. I mean, he's a pretty single issue voter on that. And he bought into the kind of just mistrust of Hillary, um, piggybacking on a mistrust of Obama. Um, You know, certainly in the in the right wing Zionist community, there are people I don't think they were excited by Trump, but they um, they bought into the idea that Hillary was potential. I mean, there are people who really do see the Iran deal as an existential threat to the state of Israel and therefore see its abrogation as the most important thing you could possibly vote on. That doesn't make them single issue voters, right? They they might say in normal times, there are lots of other things that they vote on. and It's not all just what's good for Israel or what's good for the Jews. Um, but they would say in this unique moment, they are called on to privilege abrogation of the Iran deal as the single voting issue. So I know one guy pers- well, one friend who feels that way. Um, and then but other than that, no, I mean, you know, Jews went for Hillary, I think, at about 70, 75 percent, the same numbers that they go for Democrats all the time. I think what was shocking was people thought even fewer would vote Republican because Trump has such loathsome and vile and, you know, anti-Semitic acting people in his circle. But, uh, you know, again, a lot. Th- this is a cultural style thing, too. And he kind of his swagger mixed with his misogyny, mixed with his you know reckless war talk. Appeal to uh, you know certain Jews who like that kind of swagger, and you know they're.
0: That sounds like you're a, writing a, a weird romance novel. As he walked in the room, his swagger
1: <laughs> combined <laughs> with his misogyny,
0: combined with his anti-war talk, he had me, <laughs> he had me at uh, militarism.
1: <laughs> right. right. Um, he had me at Stephen Miller. I mean, the, the you know there are all kinds of people in all kinds of communities, right? And so there are you know misguided or somewhat deluded Jews. Just as they're misguided and somewhat deluded, you know, Gentiles from you know every every corner of the world. So it's it's not surprising to me that there are Jews who voted for him. But but do, one question would be: Do I, You seem to be asking: Do I know anyone who now regrets it? Um, no, because if what you cared about was his 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 foreign policy, um, then in fact, the fact that he's tamped down a lot of the anti-Semitic signaling probably makes you even more comfortable with him, right? Now it's just, and and he also turns out not to be remotely an isolationist. So he's actually fulfilling a lot of their non-anti-Semitic plus neocon fantasies. He's turning into, you know, more of a Dick Cheney figure, which is actually what they would have preferred in the first place. So I haven't seen a lot of buyer's remorse.
2: Yeah. So I'm wrapping around my mind around him turning it into Dick Cheney, so I just need to melt. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and it's, so if you're if if you're if you fear anti-Semitism and the manifestation of that is Israel and Zionism, you're more likely to kind of vote neocon, kind of conservative. I guess if you're center left and your fear of anti if anti-Semitism is anxiety, you tend, I guess, to worry about the fascism. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, potential fascism taking root here.
1: There is there is really significant left wing anti semitism and there is really significant right wing anti semitism yeah. and um, how much people worry about each one you know has to do with a lot of other things going on in their lives Ooh, and the extent to which people you know some people don't worry about either anti semitism some people worry intensely about both and some people are on a push pull continuum between the two. Um, I think they're both medium serious. I don't think either one of them is an existential threat to Jews in the United States. Uh, though Europe is a pretty different thing. It's you know, yeah. I have I have a friend at Oxford who feels you know the, the where you get left wing anti-Semitism of the kind of radical yeah. kind of unthinkingly pro Palestinian um, and sort of you know of that variety, and you get sort of genteel right wing, you know, class based Tory. Uh, upper class anti-Semitism coming from a sort of establishment, um, you know, old Oxford. So they're really squeezed there. Um, you know, on American campuses, it's on American campuses, it's primarily a left wing phenomenon. But of course, in American, you know, gun clubs, it's a right wing phenomenon where it exists. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you make of the the, high, the shooter at the high school in Florida, who has a pretty strong record of racism and anti-Semitism? I mean, forty percent of the school is Jewish. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's a whole that's a conversation we can have but the the persistence of Jews as figures of evil in the minds of malefactors the world over even in societies that essentially have no Jews you know the persistence of anti-semitic tropes in Japan for example the persistence of weird stereotypes about Jews um you know in uh in Af- certain african countries yeah. the persistence of Jews as a you know boogeyman in Poland which is almost Jew free right um it's astonishing. It is it is a it is a unique pathology um, and poison in the minds of a lot of people. So it's not an unrealistic fear. I think that for some Zionists, they feel like as long as Israel's secure, that's that's the primary antidote to it. But I think that's deeply misguided.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of it, it, it does relate to nationalism. I mean, making Poland great again, um, right. making America great again. I think, um, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting interesting thing to think about. Uh, of course, you have Jared Kushner. So all is well in the world,
1: I'm right? Pointing. He's our savior, right? If Jared, yeah. you know, if, if Jared Kushner, <laughs> Harvard's finest, um, <laughs> you know, was whispering in Trump's ear, uh, and his Jewish wife Ivanka is all as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: So
0: that's good. Do you do you worry about? I mean, you think about sort of cent, centrist and sort of progressive Judaism, right? And, and you look at sort of centrist or sort of progressive Christianity. It seems like. The demographics are shrinking and it seems like conservative Christians and sort of modern Orthodox Jews just by reproduction, right, like seem to get more of the market share. I mean, is this are we looking at sort of a a sort of landscape, you think, over the next century where the country is increasingly secular, except the religious segment that's that's really conservative because because the family sort of cohesion stuff. I mean, does that do you think that could happen?
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, you know, the demographers in Israel, for example, really fight about this. There's some who say that the country will be mostly Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, in 50 or 100 years. And then there's some who say that's overblown, that in fact there's more attrition within those communities, more people leave the fold than we think. Um, that if they all stayed, that it would have happened already, but but right. obviously a lot right. are leaving. Um, you know, I I don't know. I mean, there's so in the United States, there's so many factors, right? Immigration is a factor. Um, Our sheer size is a factor, right? So the Amish have high retention and high birth rate, but they're not about to take over even Ohio or Pennsylvania politics anytime soon just because – They don't
2: vote. (laughs) (laughs) They don't vote.
1: (laughs) And they don't vote, right? So – but, you know, within the Jewish community, yeah, I mean it's a small community and the birth rate on the – for lack of a better word, the right is so much higher and the retention is so much higher and the intermarriage rate is so much lower. that. I mean, I see this in some ways as very liberating because I often tell liberal and, you know, liberal Jews, um, you can we can stop worrying about the survival of the Jewish people because the, the Haredi have got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. all of the stuff that Jews have been worrying about forever, which is, you know, will we survive Jewish continuity, birth rate, intermarriage? It's not on us anymore. There There is actually, you know, there are several hundred thousand Jews in the United States who are having you know, between, you know, four and 14 children per family, and um, most of whom stay within the fold. So Jews will persist. The question is, will non haredi Judaism or Judaism engaged with modernity, will it persist? And it, you know, and it will, but to what extent will it become a boutique thing? You know, will it it shrink down to the role that like Unitarianism plays within, um, you know, Christian or Judeo-Christian culture uh, of just a sort of boutique thing that has that claims a lot of thought leaders or interesting people but actually has no footprint demographically. And that is possible. On the, on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of people who are working very hard within progressive Judaism successfully to make it vital and um, and compelling and to make it survive. So I'm hopeful.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think on the other I think there are uh, you know it's it's kind of the catch 22. I mean, in talking to conservatives we've talked about this a single I think the single largest demographic over the last twenty years in this country who have stopped going to church are blue-collar people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So there's a So those don't tend to be progressives. So I think it's it's a phenomenon. I think what was going on with progressive and more liberal mainline Christianity is kind of catching up across
1: across. Yeah. The oh, yeah. And and if I'm not mistaken, the number of baptisms every year by the Southern Baptist Convention is now declining. Yeah. You know, yeah. We hit a high water mark a few years back, and now they're you know they're losing. Their numbers are going down or their rate of growth is going way down.
2: Yeah. And I, I do think there's a sense where, <clears throat> you know, we've talked a lot about this, that, um, you know, so much of Protestantism and modernity have shaped each other. And so as some of the modern project is, you know, I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, like, I'm more like Foucault. I think they go back and forth. I don't think they're sequential, but there's certain things that are just playing out. And I think... Uh, I mean, I, I believe that the Trump phenomena you know I think the the failure of progressive Christianity to meet the spiritual needs of its of its people is part of you know starting whenever you want to say that happened is part of i mean again it's i'm not talking causality, but I think it's part of the factor, so this isn't just a rise of a particular right wing thing, but it's also a failure sometimes of progressive Christianity to meet the basic spiritual needs of its congregants. And, and I think that's why a lot of them went looking for something else. It's not—I don't think it was a social action. It was a social action that replaced spiritual nurture. I mean, I think you look at some of those congregations that were flourishing, that were doing Billy Graham and social action. It wasn't an either-or proposition. But for many of the people that preceded us in this work, and many of our own—my generation and maybe some of yours— um, they did not see the need, they did not see their primary purpose as a clergy was to help people with the existential spiritual issues. And I think people, there's no, I, I always say, if you're not interested in that, go to brunch and read the New York Sunday, New York Times. They home I mean, on Sunday, that's right. There's, yeah, there's, I,
1: good, there's, good in, there's good public radio on.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And Mark, you grew up,
0: you're, you're kind of opposite the trend, right? Like you grew up in a progressive kind of home in Connecticut, right? But But not super religiously observant. And then you became more religious. In fact, I've heard you say you were sent to this sort of hippie summer camp where they were—they had five freedoms. Of ro- they added one to Roosevelt. You, know, you had freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, and your summer camp added freedom from clothes. Yeah, this. Was, <laughs> so you had a nude, nude sum, summer camp. I like
1: that. I didn't go nude. I, I held the line. We at, at my church camp, camp we had to sneak
2: to do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah.
1: It was but, all boys, but, I should say. Um, it, yeah, that was Farm and Wilderness, which is still a very active Quaker influenced, Qu- ancestrally Quaker camp in Vermont. Uh, really strange place. Um, and then I went to Camp Kinderland, which was a kind of famous Yiddish socialist, uh, Yiddishist socialist oh, yeah, yeah. in Western Massachusetts. And um, where the bunk I was in was 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 Debs F.T.G. Debs. And um, you no, know, I mean I grew up in Western Massachusetts, and my yeah my parents were Jewish. Proudly Jewish, but non-observant and non-engaged with synagogue life, um, which I, which I am, and yeah, and that happens too. The people you should talk to about this, you know, there are, there are some rabbis right now, a lot of them in American Judaism and elsewhere, who have been really terrific at meeting people's spiritual needs while also having while also having a sense, of, a sense of social mission. So like Liel's rabbi, David Ingbert in New York City, is absolutely someone you should have on the show. And he comes out of, a, of an Orthodox background and he is now kind of this trans-denominational, what we would call renewal, Jewish renewal rabbi, very yeah. Hasidic, Hasidic mysticism influence, very spiritual, uh, very kind of like... Almost Pentecostal seeming in his worship, and and his congregants are very engaged in in social justice, and but very spiritually. I mean, those services are very intense. Uh, there's a woman in Los Angeles, uh, Sharon Bruce, B R O U S, whose congregation, Icar, IKAR, I K A R, was founded because she said, "Why is it that you know only the the left of Judaism is doing social action, but only the right has meaningful prayer? Can we ha- can we have the two together?" Mm-hmm. Um, and she's she is trained by the conservative movement. So um, but there are, and there are a lot of other rabbis yeah. who are very good on that front. So uh, we have a lot of talent in um, in in spiritual leadership in the Jewish world right now, as I'm sure they do in Christianity. But will these will will these ret- will these movements return to mass movements among their intended audiences? Will it ever be the case that Jewish synagogue membership is fifty or seventy five percent or Christian church attendance is you know, I don't think so. I mean to some extent the trends of Europe are catching up with us. Right.
0: But what made the difference for you? I mean why why is your own religious life and practice different from that which you grew up with my in? parents? Yeah. What 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 changed for you that, that made you sort of a person who is pretty active in synagogue life?
1: I mean I think so my I would say my dad in particular has a very spiritual side and has gone on all sorts of retreats and kind of searched for something but he's less of a joiner than I am and I tend to you know my spirituality is really found in community mm-hmm. I mean I, you know I'm an extrovert right so like I like I like kind of gatherings of people who are who have some sort of common cause or common interest so I think that um and I think that the Jewish project, the ongoing sort of persistence of Judaism and, and Jewish questions and Jewish texts, centered around Jewish texts and Jewish rituals, is a meaningful way to um, to gather. And also the way in which I pretty kind of, um, uh, in a kind of almost mystical sense, feel called to gather. Like, I don't feel called to ask those questions or engage in those quests with a um, with a trans-religious pluralist uh, you know, community of Whole Food shoppers and public radio listeners, which is the church for a lot of people, yeah. you know, whom yeah. I know, whom I, who are some of my best friends, right? And yeah. that to me just feels like a really kind of thin and, and hollowed out way to to pursue meaning.
0: Yeah. yeah I'm curious, like you, you spent most of your career as a, as a journalist and teaching, and now you've Over the past couple of years, co-hosted a podcast that's wildly popular and increasingly so. And you're having more public events. Has that changed? How has that changed like your life? How you you just see faith, public life, your own personal life? I mean, because it's a different medium, right? I mean, writing is different. Like my sense is people probably don't get as strong a sense of you from reading your stuff. As they do from listening to you, or they probably feel like they they do have a different kind of
1: connection to you. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, look, there is a, a large community of people for whom the audio medium hits them like a you know like a punch in the gut, and um, and they react really strongly, and they they reach they reach back to you, and they are grateful and you know we are now scheduling listening parties where people are going to get together listen to an episode and then we're going to Skype in with them the hosts are going to join them to talk about the episode and when we have live shows people want to come out they want to meet us so like it's it's thrilling i mean it's just there's nothing bad to say about it it's all thrilling it's all good it's exciting it's um it's visceral and um and it and it feels like public service because there it, mm-hmm. you we learn about how we become this regular meaningful ritual or just enjoyable ritual in people's week. You know, if an episode doesn't drop on Thursday morning, we get mails saying, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's good. The, like I schedule my week or on a Thursday morning, I know I'll be with you guys and then you're not there. I feel stood up. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm a writer and I'll always be a writer. You know, it, it, I can't imagine not having a writing project underway at any given time, but, um, but I will say that more of my joy right now, it's, you know, comes from from the podcast than from anything else I do professionally.
2: Well, I tell you, we didn't think we would get to 200. We no, didn't, we no. didn't. We didn't. I don't think we thought we'd get to two. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here you but, are. Yeah. You're right. But it's been a it's what a great honor to have you celebrate our 200. Yeah, with us. absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, and for 300, we'll get the mummer outfits. Yeah, yeah, come back. yeah,
1: we're going to dress up in mummer. <laughs> bicentennial. The exactly. mummer outfit's in honor in honor of the Eagles. In honor, yeah, of
2: the Eagles. Like the best Eagle speech was the tight end. I don't know if you saw it. You need to you need to watch the unedited version. But he, he gave a speech in a mummer's outfit that was was incredible. Yeah. Well,
1: you know my my uh, my mother's family are all Philadelphians, and so um, you know I used to I remember I was watching the mummers parade in my grandfather's kitchen on TV year after year after year. Is it is it during Thanksgiving? Is that when the Mummers New, parade is? New Year's, New, New Year's Day. New Year's Day.
0: There's no one not from Philadelphia that's a bigger fan of the Mummers than my wife. She watches the whole parade. She's like, wait, sweetie, come in, come in. The big reveal. You know, that's what yeah. they'll pop out. Yeah. They're she, she lives and dies. And it's great because, you know, they'll say, oh, and the band kept, uh, you know, his educational background, a uh, graduate of Lower Bucks High School. And it's sounds
2: like, you know, they'll do these, they'll, they'll do the, the, the resumes are fascinating, like, like an eighth grade graduate. Of- <laughs> <laughs> eighth grade graduate who is. Uh, As somebody
1: wouldn't be where I am today if not for the, the belief in me held by my grandfather, uh, Roxborough High School class of uh, 28, and then teacher at Roxborough from about 1934 to 1974. That's um, awesome. Yeah, no, they're uh, they're they're really deep Philadelphians. So yeah. I was I was definitely pro Eagles this year. Though my daughter, growing up in New England, is a Patriots fan. So there was some in, there was some tension. In the, but she brought me back to football. I mean, I, I I hadn't cared about football for since I was twelve. And then my daughter, my eleven year old daughter Rebecca, whom Scott has met, uh, like brought me back because she was so interested in the Patriots this year.
0: Uh, well, that's great.
1: Yeah, pro Eagles.
0: Mark, yeah. thanks for spending some time Thank with us. Thank you, Mark. Very much. Thank you. And people tune into Unorthodox. It's a great and, show.
1: Mazzle top to you guys on your bicentennial. Thank, Thank you. So you. Much.
0: Thanks, Mark. Thank you.
1: Yep. Let's go
0: away and face that losing our control. Fill up my cup. top. Look at it dancing. Just take it off. Let's paint it down. We'll shut it down. Let's
2: burn the roof. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And do it, and do it. Let's
0: live it up, do it, and do it. And do it, do it, do it. Let's do it, let's do it. Let's do it cuz I got feeling. it That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good good night. I a feeling. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good, good night. Tonight's tonight. night. Hey. Let's live it up. Let's live it up. I got my money. Hey. Let's spin it up. Let's spin it up. Go out and smash it. Smash it. it.
2: Like oh my god. Like oh my god. Jump out that sofa. Come on. Let's get, get. Call oh. Fill up my cup. Drink.
0: Look at her dance, move it, move it. Just take it oh Let's paint the town. Paint the town. We'll shut it down.
2: Shut it down. Let's burn the roof. And then we'll do it again. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, and do it, and do it. Let's live it up and do it. And
0: do it, and do it, do us do it, Let's do it, Let's do it. Let's do it, do it, do it, let's do it. Body rock, rock it, don't stop. Round and round, up and down, all around the clock. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday to Sunday, Keep, 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 You know what we say, say body every day, pop, pop, pop.